Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You probably missed my voice. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye. And and Mayu, what's going on, everyone? Austin, you only did one preamble while you were gone, man. Yeah, I, I checked. I checked near the end of the vacation. I was like, oh, did we end up releasing Alex's uh, episode? Who's going to be our guest today? I was holding this up for you. I know you were... Uh... I'm passionate about this yeah, episode. Yeah. It, was a, it was a really good one. No, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, but back from vacation, was uh, at Europe for, for two weeks, had a blast. Everyone's telling me that, and you probably heard the same thing, Sweden, Norway, those like Scandinavian countries, not a part of the EU, but a part of Europe, their cost of living is extraordinarily high, right? Went there and it's not, not that Toronto is really high, right? So when I went there, I wasn't really shocked about their cost of living. In fact, a lot of times Toronto- How much is a coffee? Okay, let's talk about like going out for drinks, okay. for example. I went down to drinks in a comparable place as downtown Toronto. And their drink, remember, you don't have to pay tip and tax is already included and in all their listing prices on the menu. Conversion. Why do you not have to pay tip? Did you not know that? Tip is just a Canadian, US and like a UK thing. Tip is not a thing in the rest of the world. It's like I'm, three I'm or definitely four countries. just tipped everywhere. <laughs> no, no. Tipping is not a thing in the world. It is just Canada, US and UK from my understanding. Yeah. <laughs> so you've been blessing people. But yeah, you don't have to tip there. So the price is $18 for a cocktail. Whereas you come in downtown Toronto, you order a cocktail, $15, $16 plus tax on top, 13%, plus tip on top, it works out to 18 bucks, right? And alcohol is considered very expensive in those countries because the government doesn't want to incentivize people to drink. And food is like $14, $15 Canadian, $16 Canadian at a restaurant. So, I mean, I don't know, bro. I was when I was in Switzerland, my freaking um, hamburgers or, or fish and chips was 30 uh, Swiss francs or whatever the currency Sw- was. Switzerland's fuck. Switzerland yeah. is more expensive than all okay, of those fine. <laughs> Interesting. Perspective cost of living in Toronto is actually like really, really fucked, even when you compare it to these other big cities across the world. In Paris as well, Paris is so much cheaper than <laughs> Toronto for the food, drinking, yeah. all of that. But yeah, it was a good time. I uh, released my stress. I was quiet on social media, but going to be back on the grind soon. I see you created threads. What the hell is that all about? <laughs> you missed it in time. Ah, I didn't even know what that was. I was like, what You're is this? Grandpa now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's the same shit as Twitter. It's just, uh, I'm too late to start on Twitter. Like I thought about Twitter a couple of times. Like, fuck, how do, how do I start like growing my presence here? I'm just going to talk to myself for like the first like little bit, right? Threads just migrates all your followers over. So, so reach threads. Me and uh, the guy from Landlord, Landlord Ontario Help page, uh, we've been going out on threads. Pretty nice. <laughs> just with some yeah. Pretty, uh, Have you been guys been getting a good amount of following and, and all of that? Like it's, tough, it's tough to say. It's tough to say because it just seems like everyone's just from like Instagram. Like I wouldn't say it's like organic new following, right? Which is like not really that great, right? But you know how we do rants on our Instagram stories? Yeah. Like you and I both do the same shit. I fucking hate it because like I like ranting, but I hate the process of doing it on my Instagram yeah. story because I have to like, move my fonts around and like scale it and like make sure it's readable or, or yeah. whatever, right? Threads, super easy. I just type it on notes, copy, paste, put it into threads, post to my story, I'm done. It's like a yeah. two-minute process, right? So it's way easier just for that feature. 
and they're probably going to encourage people to use it, help your algorithm too. So that's why I want to jump on it while it's still fresh in you. But anyways, real estate side, <laughs> what are you, what have you been up to? So threads is one of the things for branding. What else? Real estate? Um, we closed our seven unit. That was a little bit of a nightmare. Um, I think last time I was like alluding to it, but I didn't want to get into it because it hadn't closed yet. So basically what had happened is I bought this property. I want to say early, like early to mid May, maybe, right? Because uh, I'd done my refinance already. Maybe it was mid, mid late. But I bought the property and uh, dragged my feet, to be honest with it, on the financing. I was like, you know what? I've got plenty of time. It's only closing in about like two and a half months or something. It was supposed to close mid-July. So early to mid-June, started the process, was going with Deja then submitted everything. And uh, we had ordered the appraisal to be at the end of June. I think it was like June 26th or something like that, right? And then uh, I was sending over the paperwork, like the, the PSAs and stuff to Deja then I realized, yeah, I'm missing like this amendment that like had the closing date be amended from July 4th to July 14th or 16th or something like that. Or I guess 14th would be today. So maybe it was Monday. And so then I reached out to OSO and I'm like, y'all, like, I think I'm missing this like amendment. Like, do you guys have a copy of it? I don't know where it is. I can't find it. And then the wholesaler like then got back to me and then nothing against the wholesaler either. He was like, Hey, like I completely messed up. Like we actually never got that signed, the amendment. He's like, let me talk to the seller and try and get it signed. Try signing the seller for like a week, week and a half. And then the seller was eventually, I guess, just like, I'm not signing anything. Like, fuck you guys. Because the seller found out that uh, he had resold it to me and that there was assignment, stuff like that. And so then it was uh, the week before the long weekend when we finally got that verdict from him that he wasn't going to extend. So we had to quickly get a private lender in place. Pretty reasonable terms, like 12 plus one. I'm okay with it. I had a pretty, like, it's not a crazy loan to value, but I was okay with uh, keeping a lower loan to value because I want to make sure I stay under 75% LTV anyways. And then what had happened was the private lender, everything was good to go. The private lender's lawyer was like, hey, we're not funding this July 4th because like it's a long weekend and like no one's going to be in to like do this shit on time, right? And meanwhile, I knew we weren't getting an extension from the seller because the seller was bitter as fuck, right? So we had still requested like a two-day extension from the seller and we got like no response. And this was now the Friday before the long weekend. I'm like, fuck, we're probably not going to get this extension. So over the long weekend, I essentially had to raise the full amount in cash, and friends and like, unsecured loans and stuff like that. And it was 520 grand. So the shortfall was like 350K that I had to replace over the weekend. I still had some cash, um, but like not enough to like close it all on my own. Managed to put that shit together, yo. Monday morning, I basically drove from like here to Vaughn to like, I got someone to do it in downtown. Someone's deposited money for me from like London, like Ontario. Like it was just like all over the place with money coming into the accounts. And then Monday at like 2 p.m., the seller responds and they're like, hey, we'll give you the extension until Thursday. But like, we're not going to give you this extra two grand that like I told them because over the weekend we reviewed like the same amount of adjustments. They made some mistakes. I was like, yo, you guys fucked this up. Like you owe me two grand. And they're like, we're mm-hmm. not going to give you the two grand, but we'll give you the two days. So mm-hmm. I was like, holy fuck, you guys need to stress the fuck out for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> so agreed to the extra two days. Yeah. So then all this money got deposited to the lawyer's account and the lawyer had to give it back to me. Luckily they gave us extension though because we had fucking holds on like a bunch of money that we deposited. So that kind of worked out. Mm-hmm. No. And now it's closed and it's all good. I'm supposed to go up there this Sunday um, to try and meet with some of these tenants and do some cash for keys and we'll see how it goes, man. Yeah, no. And this is a CMHC MOI select that you're hoping to go for after yeah. or do you, you're going to go traditional? No, I'm just going to go traditional, man. Okay, I'm okay. Nice. It, like, but the waiting process and stuff like that, like if I pull out my capital, I'm perfectly fine. Yeah. Under all forecasts, like I should be more than fine to pull out my capital, uh, 850K valuation and yeah. Mm-hmm. So it should mm-hmm. be fine. 
Awesome. Yeah, that's the uh, man. No matter how experienced you get, there's always these stressful times okay, that everyone yeah. goes through. <laughs> it's good that you have the connections. Otherwise, most people, I mean, what are they to do? Right. You're just going to kind of sit there. And if you can't raise that, it's a lot of money to raise at a last yeah, you know, yeah. at a quick period of time. Usually people will ask for super high rates if you need money in like 24 hours. On my end, I'll keep it short, but on my end, private lending, we went over that. So I have money lent out. A little bit of delay in getting it back. I don't which, think we ever talked about your private lending. No, I don't think we did. But private lending and <laughs> waiting to get the money back. It's a little bit delayed. Should have got it back yesterday. But I'm not panicking yet. And I don't think I will panic. I know the person. So should be good. So doing that, the interest rate was pretty good. So you plus the penalties, because there's going to be penalties. When you forecast it out, what, how much interest it was for the year, it's like 80%. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Extrapolate. Yeah, that was good. And then flip in Toronto coming to an end, hoping to list it. Unfortunately, we couldn't beat the rate hike. So there's that. Yeah. I expect there to be a little slowdown, but the ARV is really conservative, right? Four bedrooms, 1.2 million downtown Toronto. So wrap that up. Uh, I'm trying to think what else there is. And then we sold, we'll get into this next time, but we're selling we're in the middle of selling one of our properties. This was the property that was going to be extradited from us from the yeah. government. So many that things going on. Now, no, that one's fair. That one's Not fair. really. They have to initial back on the amendment for the irrevocability because oh, it was okay. after irrevocability, but should be good there. We'll get through that next time. But a lot going on, man. Wish this preamble could be. We long. sold our last single family house as well. Don't forget. Yes, that one. yes. We sold. That was yesterday. Okay, let's get it. We'll talk about all of our sales next time, I guess, because there's so much to update. That's been, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I want to say it's been keeping us busy, but there's a lot of updates to go through on kind of it's what crazy. our. Sometimes I feel like I'm doing nothing and then we do a preamble and I'm like, oh, fuck, I guess there is some shit going yeah, on. Yeah, there's a lot. Sometimes that we I, the opposite is true, too. Sometimes I feel like I'm busy as fuck and we'll come out a preamble and we're like, what the fuck did we talk about today? But, yeah, I just did a lot of paperwork. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyways, we're going to jump straight into the episode. We've been waiting long enough. We have Alex Nisenker and you guys may not know who he is, but he's a vice president in Graybrook's private capital markets group. And if you guys don't know Graybrook, just go on Google. It's one of the larger PE firms in uh, Canadian real estate. They do development in Canada, in the States. They do multifamily investing as well. They're deploying hundreds of millions of dollars in capital. So on a very large scale. And for those who in Toronto, if you know Liberty Village, right? I am sure most of you guys do. Graybrook is actually responsible for developing a large part of Liberty Village. So we get into so many interesting topics from what Graybrook is, what they do, how they underwrite deals and how it's relevant for us as investors to assess risk and underwrite our own deals. We go into development. We go into the overall market dynamics as well of Canadian real estate, a little bit about U.S. real estate as well. This is an amazing episode and one of my favorites to record. Same with my as well. So we hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as we did recording it. So make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with a very special guest. And Maya and I have been pumped up for this episode for a while. We are joined with the best vice president of private capital markets of Graybrook Realty Partners, Alex Nissenker. Alex, how's everything going, my man? Doing well, boys. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited as well to be here. I love uh, chatting shop with some bright young mind. For sure, Alex. So, so you're definitely, it's called a unique guest, a different guest from what we normally have. But for anyone that might not know you and might not know the company you're working with, can you give everyone kind of a quick background on yourself and Gradebook as well? Sure. So, so myself, um, 
I'm Alex. I've had a bit of an eclectic sort of career journey. I went to business school in my early years uh, and then went into commercial banking after business school. I, I did about a decade between a few firms. And then I sort of had this uh, a little bit of an epiphany and, and the kind of early life crisis thing that I wanted to explore business all on my own. And I quit banking entirely and I uh, went down a rabbit hole of entrepreneurial journeys, everything from producing reality television, getting into the cannabis industry, and doing a little bit of SaaS stuff, and eventually sort of coming back full circle and being on the real estate side in finance. And now here I am kind of combining my entrepreneurial spirit and my finance experience and my real estate experience and and sort of marrying all those worlds together in, in uh, at Graybrook. And Graybrook as a firm, it's a private equity firm focused entirely or predominantly on residential real estate as an asset class. We underwrite, finance, manage uh, fairly large scale real estate developments in both Canada and the United States. Awesome. So let's dive into that just a little bit more. Um, so what is your exact role in Greybrook outside of the title? What do you do sort of on the day-to-day basis? And you mentioned investments, private equity. You guys are obviously investing money. Sure. What type of projects, what type of investments are you doing in the real estate space? Sure. So my role predominantly, if you want to break it down in a very simple way, is managing capital and raising capital. So I am responsible for working with my investor base and helping them allocate their capital into projects that Graybrook is underwriting and managing. So if you were an individual and you had a couple hundred thousand dollars that you wanted to impose to real estate as an asset class, you didn't want to be a landlord and you didn't want to go the public reach route and you wanted something a little bit more specific and kind of in the middle of the spectrum, you know, you'd work with somebody like me on helping you identify which project to go after and how much capital to place. And, you know, I obviously run you through all the underwriting and I'd run you through the schematics and, you know, you'd get comfortable with it before writing any checks. Graybrook as a firm takes on fairly diverse projects, even within a residential real estate as an asset class, right? So we're already kind of niche in the fact that we're only touching residential. But even within that space, we'll kind of carve it out into three different buckets. Bucket number one is the raw land development bucket. And it's essentially us turning, you know, a vacant farm or agricultural land into a master plan community or subdivision, going all the way from, you know, identifying the land, servicing the land, constructing the houses, sales and marketing all the way start to finish. We will also do that on the high rise side. So let's say you you find parcel of land in the urban center, a parking lot, for example converting that into a high-rise tower or several high-rise towers. So that's raw land development for the purpose of sale. Then we will do raw land development for the purpose of lease up or the purpose of rental. So same principle, but instead of selling all these end units, we're renting them to ultimate tenants. And then once they're fully occupied, we will generally sell that off as a stable cash flow asset, usually a pension fund or a REIT or another PE firm that's more interested in the stable asset class. And then the last one that we do is we will do stuff in the value add space. So that is essentially buying existing already constructed real estate, improving that real estate to some capacity, getting better rent rolls out of it. And then again, selling it off once we're done with the value add improvements. So those are the general three buckets we work in. Yeah. And just to give people an idea of scale, like you guys injected over $2 billion of invested capital. And once you've completed these sort of projects, 
it's hundreds of billions of dollars in exit value, right? So just to give people an idea of what sort of project that you do. Funny enough, actually, there's a condo near my condo that I'm living in right now. So I live in the Fort York area and I'm just on your website and I realized that you guys were involved in the uh, development of it, the one at Garrison Point. Nice, yeah. <laughs> We've done over a hundred projects, right? So we're founded in 04. We've done just over a yeah. hundred projects. Uh, and you're absolutely right. We took on just over $2 billion of investor equity since we've been founded, just over $30 billion of real estate value constructed. We do projects, you know, like I said, all over North America, but there's a few that I think are more iconic than others, just of their scale and size and, and potentially their branding. So right now, our biggest kind of most iconic project we're actively in is the Waldorf in Miami. That'll be, I believe, the tallest tower in the state. We were very responsible. We had a huge hand in building out Liberty Village. We did the stockyards in Toronto for some of the local listeners and, and currently constructing a whole lot of stuff all over the city, including, you know, our, one of our first sales launches will be the Baby Village project uh, at Baby and Shepherd. So fairly diverse in our offering. And, and that's by design. And that's essentially to allow our investor base to have exposure to different types of housing as investment, different geographical regions different projects of different timelines, right? Some may take three years to complete, some may take a decade. So you want your investors to be able to pick and choose and diversify their capital. So for a lot of our guests, they're probably listening to this and they're going, this is like way, way, way beyond our scope, right? But I think um, the important thing here is like, I'm looking at your website, there's so many like a plot of land in Markham and like there's some of these individual projects might not be like too drastically like out of scope. I'm sure it is a little bit, right? But you can just do it at a smaller scale. But I'd be curious, like when you guys are going out there and you're evaluating deals, obviously being well-funded is is one big part of it, right? But even just like evaluating some of these deals, like I'm seeing like Baron Land and like Oshawa, you know, how do you guys go about the due diligence, in, especially like in the current market that we're in, right? It's like, we don't know where prices will be. Like you could buy a couple acres of land and I think you guys had one in Markham as well, right? You could buy that and you could say, hey, I'm going to put, I don't know what your plan is, but I like call it like 50 ohms on it, right? But it's ultimately based on a forecast on like material, a forecast on like future, like resale values, like development fees are going up and like labor is going up. Like, how are you guys possibly going through due diligence in the uncertain economy that we are given the timeline of your projects? That was a loaded question. So I, like, let me know if it, it doesn't make sense there. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think it makes sense. I, I think, you know, the advantage we have, if you want to call it an advantage, is that when you get to a certain scale and let's remove Greybrook as a firm for a second and just focus on an individual project, right? So let's use an existing project that we are currently just closing funding on. It's a project internally we call Hamilton 3, about 113 acres buildable land in Hamilton, throw up about 10 doors an acre, right? So let's call it about 1,300 doors of low-rise housing that we'll do in that project. So that's a very large scale project, but even let's say you do half of that or a quarter of that. So let's say you're doing 250 doors. The ability you have to weather slight adjustments, your risk gets spread out across so many doors. It does become a little bit easier to have deltas in cost or negative deltas in price because the scale is so large. So if, for example, I'm taking like, I'm one of your listeners, I'm taking a parcel landing west at Young and Shepherd, a 50 foot parcel, I'm buying it for $1.8 million. I plan to sever and build two homes on that parcel. So now all of a sudden, if my severance cost goes up by 20%, if my lumber cost goes up by 20%, like I really only have two doors to spread that risk across. So 
there's going to be a ceiling that the market could absorb on what I could sell those doors for. So there's only so much I could pass on to the end consumer as far as like whatever things I didn't forecast for are happening to me. When you're dealing with, you know, 1300 doors, I can do all kinds of things to help lessen the burden or lessen the blow. I can strategically delay sales center launches. I could change the types of footprints I'm building. So if I was originally going to do a mix of 500 semis and 500 towns, now I'll do 800 towns and 200 semis because the price sensitivity of the ultimate consumer I'm noticing is going in a different direction. I'm still selling the same square footage, but I'm making little adjustments to the dynamic of my plan in order to appease the marketplace. So that's, you know, when you're getting to a scale, the amount of levers you're able to pull up or down is way more, in my opinion, than kind of, you know, the individual who's really just trying to do this one, two, three doors at a time. It's, in my opinion, a lot more difficult to have un sort of non-forecasted expenses or non-forecasted things. Plus, these individuals are usually on very tight timelines. They're usually working with very sort of short-term lulls and, and, you know, they have to kind of pump stuff out in 12 months, 18 months, two years, whatever it is. And if they can't do it, then there's all kinds of fees and everything else that goes along with it. So because of the scale, we're fortunate with all those levers. We also kind of frequently say that we're in the margin business, right? So we are not at the mercy of time in order to establish profit. So when we are underwriting and forecasting how we're looking at real estate, we are not saying to ourselves, well, historically, the market's performed at a 5% year over year. So the market will continue to move in a hockey stick direction. And as long as we can erect the housing, the market and time, the passing of time is where we're going to make our margin. It's a very dangerous way of looking at things. And I think good or bad, the last two years have finally woken up a lot of real estate people in the city of Toronto and the GTA and maybe even Canada in general to kind of splash some cold water in some of our faces and say the, the market doesn't always move up. It's not a given that there will be year over year compounding interest and sometimes significant rates of return. So the way we look at it is First and foremost is, you know, this is kind of a cardinal rule, I think, for all of real estate is that a lot of the money you make in real estate, you make on the buy. You, if you buy right, you will always protect the end, right? So as long as you enter the market properly and at a good a rate you're comfortable with, even if there's price compression down the road at the time of exit, you will always be left with something. Maybe it's not the return you were looking for originally and Maybe all that sweat equity and dollars you risk aren't worth it for you at the end. That's a different conversation, different topic, but at least you're protecting yourself by buying right. So whenever we underwrite deals, we're always underwriting essentially three things you mentioned, right? So one is what is our cost per door? What are, what are we buying raw land for? What are we buying buildable foot for, right? Because that cost is fixed. The second you fix it, it's there. That's not changing. We're also fortunate in the fact that we do so many of these, our ability to secure resources, so raw lumber or steel or uh, our ability to negotiate rates with unions on plumbers and electricians and everything else. That cost stack is very well underwritten because a lot of this stuff is predetermined. You know, we're RFPing stuff out, right? So it's not like, oh, we're ready to go shovels in the ground. Let's go find an excavator to figure out how much it's going to cost. All of that is predetermined. The real variable in a lot of this, and I think this is the variable where 
no matter how astute you are, no matter how well of an asset manager you are, you're still at the mercy of the market. And that's the sale price, right? So what do we think we could offload these properties for X years down the line? Keep in mind, the disadvantage for us, if you want to call it a disadvantage versus probably one of your potentially listings is that they're casting a year out, two years out, right? So if I'm going to do a flip, let's say I'm gutting a house, I'm flipping it or I'm severing a lot, I'm going to put two doors up. That's like a two-year play at the most. And you may even be going to the market with those doors 12 months, 18 months down the line. Much easier to predict with some element of certainty what those doors will be able to garner, right? If I use the Hamilton as an example, we're not launching a sales center for five and a half years right on that project. So I could be an amazing asset manager, an amazing underwriter, but anything that tells you today that know the price, any real estate five or six years into the future, they're drinking some great Kool-Aid and I'd like some because that is a very difficult thing to do. So our approach, generally speaking, is just to be conservative. We try to take it a conservative underwriting approach. We try to say, okay, if, if a conservative scenario plays out, is there enough meat on the bowl left for us, our investor base, to get excited about this? If there isn't, we're just going to pass on it. And we do that all the time. You know, we'll do due diligence on close to 100 projects a year and we'll green light seven or eight. So it's like less than a 10% green light rate for us. Yeah. And so I've seen a couple of like small scale development budgets and stuff like that when it comes across for financing. And sometimes I look at it, I'm like, you're putting like $10 million into this and you're it to make like 800 grand at the end. Like, it's pretty bad numbers on some of these projects, right? And honestly, I'm, I'm pretty frank sometimes, but you know, for better, for worse, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. But like, what is a healthy like profit margin? And, and I understand that like for everyone, it's going to be a different answer, right? And I'm assuming smaller scale developers, mom and pop type developers have a lower requirement for profit than someone that's bringing on multiple partners and doing an institutional level with like higher legal fees and all that kind of stuff, right? But what is like a reasonable profit margin that People that are, look, that are looking at land or are looking to do some sort of project, like what kind of number can they keep in mind? Yeah, I think, I think that number for us moves a lot depending on the scale of the project. So, our, you know, we'll take a, a lower margin, obviously, if we're making our construction budget to $800 million and the sellout is $1 billion. You know, it, that's a different number versus we're taking on a $100 million project. And if we're selling out for $120 million, that's same margin, but not as exciting, right? So... We mainly look at it as an ROI because keep in mind when you're dealing kind of similar to you guys, right? So when you're dealing with a project, you have capital outlay, right? How much actual equity outlay is happening? And then what's the rest being provided by usually a lender or a bank or something like that? And then how does all the math shake out at the end when I'm, you know, the waterfall of profits come in? What's the actual return on the capital outlay I had? So we look at it from that perspective. Generally speaking, we're trying to be fairly aggressive with ROI. It's a 50%. When it comes to our investor capital, though, that's another important thing to mention is we endeavor to double investor capital every five years. So if you give me a, a dollar today and I need your dollar on hold for five years, I will give you back $2 in five years. That's sort of the firm's motto or how we try to go about treating investor capital. So we're trying to get you a 20% annualized return on your capital every year. And when I talked about kind of my previous answer, you know, on the bone. So when we underwrite a project, when we go through all of sort of the mock scenarios and here's conservative and here's optimistic and here's like doomsday, when we do all of that math, 
in the conservative scenario, if there isn't enough to generate that kind of 20 percentage return for our investor base on an annualized basis, generally or usually we'll probably want to push it aside or look at it from another angle to say, can we achieve that? Because that's kind of our threshold for investor capital. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting points that you made there that are super relatable to a lot of the things that my, you, myself, and a lot of investors talk about. Firstly, as you're mentioning, a way to adjust risk is, is that you need to cost control, right? You can't always predict what your exit's going to be. So you need to control your costs. And for you guys, that's RFPs getting contracts in place. And if costs go up or down, you already have a contract in place for, for some of your expenses at the very least, or another one's buying right because that's super important. The last one's not relying on market depreciation all the time. Now it's great and it could amplify your returns, which it has for all of us investors. But to have the exit solely based on market appreciation is more speculating than, as you were saying, playing in the margins, which is what investing or professional investors should be doing. That being said, so we, we spoke pretty in depth about the expense line And we spoke on a high level about the revenue side of things, obviously exit sale price, but I kind of want to lean into that a little bit more. Obviously, we're in a housing crisis in Ontario and Canada. Everyone talks about it. And the other story of it is, is that developers, as people don't see, they incur a lot of expenses in which like 25 to 30% goes directly to the government, right? And so if your expense line is so high, you can't really expect to launch these projects at, you know, sort of market value. And and that being said, when you're underwriting for these properties five years out, how we're seeing a lot of these sort of pre-con developments being like five, 10, 15% higher than resale. Like how do you sort of justify that? Is that something that you guys do as well? And how do you determine that pricing? Is it really just sort of like your expense line is very large because of all of those costs? And so you do have to price it higher than resale? It's more it's more of an art than a science. When I say conservative, I truly mean it. Like, so if I look at some of our recent launches, uh, not launches, but raises. So like, for example, you know, we're, we're raising or we finished a raise earlier this year on a condominium project that we'll be doing with our partner, Marlon Spring in Etobicoke at Queensway and Islington. So there's already pre-construction activity around that area, right? So we look at it and we say, okay, we're sort of walking up this land today. Our sales center won't launch for a couple of years, probably early 2025 is when we'll launch our sales center for the market. Uh, so the consumers can start buying these pre-construction units. Let's explore how the current pre-construction market is behaving present day. And generally speaking, when we explore the present day marketplace, we'll usually do one of either two things. We'll either say, okay, given the current dynamic of the real estate market, which is not the greatest, right? It's kind of up and down, up and down. Right now, as we record this today, it's kind of coming back, but who knows how long that'll last? Who knows if that's just like a, a blip, right? It, and it could come crashing down just as fast one headline and they'll be back to sort of a doom and gloom scenario. But because it's so unpredictable, because we don't really know the future of interest rates in a confident way, and we don't really know inflation and job rates and everything else. So we look at it and we say, okay, if we launch in the future at the exact same price that pre-construction is behaving at today, what do our margins look like? How do the sales shake out for us? And that's essentially what we're trying to do. If it's a sales center launch that's like two years or less into the future, we're trying to simulate a present day sales scenario with our all of our cost stack and all of our land acquisition costs. And if the margin is there for us, that's generally a good sign. It's generally a good sign because despite the market being um, 
let's call it uncertain right now. The one thing we know with very high certainty is that the cost to erect housing is not getting cheaper, right? So the cost, the actual cost of bringing new housing into the marketplace is not getting cheaper. So our competition, no matter who you are, we know that your cost is going to be here. So if you're going to bring new product to market, it's just a matter now of, are you willing to compress your margin as more than me, right? And if you're willing to compress your margin more than me, that's great, but that's eventually unsustainable and you'll just kind of, you know, remove yourself from the marketplace. So that we know for certain. So now it's just a matter of what's a fair enough margin to kind of, you know, substantiate the development. And if it's there, we'll go through with it. So when we underwrite, generally speaking, we'll look at present day dynamic and try to mimic those dynamics with our cost stack. And if the margins there, we'll proceed. Yeah, I think that's a really reasonable point that, um, again, if pre-con launches are going to be greater three, four, five years out and you're launching at today's prices, hypothetically, you're beating the competition. So exactly. I feel like it's kind of related to this. So just talking about taking down projects, obviously you're raising capital. Sounds like you're also partnering with other developers here and there, depending on the project. Usually, usually all the time. We usually always have like a hard hat partner, a developer builder partner on all the deals. Okay, perfect. So, so how do you go about, I guess, determining what a reasonable split is between like yourselves, the developer, the uh, financing partners? And is it based on risk? Is it based on the amount of capital you need? Like, how do you, I don't know, it just seems like every project is completely different, but I'm just wondering, like, how do you kind of like approximate it or cope the reasonable? So for us, I mean, because we've been doing this since 04, we're highly selective on the builder partners that we choose. Uh, multiple reasons for that. Right off the bat, one of the main reasons is just brand and reputation. So it has to sort of match the cachet that we built for ourselves on a brand reputation basis. Number two is we're asset managers. We are not a private equity firm that's just sort of writing a check and walking away. So it, it is up to our asset management team to be involved from underwriting all the way through to handing the keys off to the ultimate buyer when they're taking occupancy. As a result, there's a massive amount of organizational integration that happens. So we kind of have like a buddy system, essentially, where someone from the asset management team on our side is directly dealing with our builder partner uh, equivalent, right, on their side. So because there's so much organizational integration, it's difficult, flash, not that kind of best practice for us to continuously bring on new partners and say, oh, you want a partner? Come on board. You want a partner? Come on board. It's just too much of a nuance to what we do. So we generally stick with the same core group. And, you know, we partner with some of the kind of most ho- or household names in the city, Treasure Hill, Fernbrook, Cities that and uh, Marlin Spring, to name a few. And then the last sort of component of it, to your question, we are fairly standardized in the way we partner with our builders and our investors and, and how like all the flow of capital works. Um, and the reason we generally only take on very select partners is because when it comes time to get construction financing and it comes time to guarantee loans, that partner has to be well established and have a balance sheet that's strong enough to go take to the bank and say, hey, bank, I need. 500 million to go construct 1300 homes in Hamilton and the bank will loan it against that balance sheet. So we're fairly standardized on how we do profit splits. We're fairly standardized on how much equity Greybrook provides up front versus the builder provides up front. And that's just the result of doing so many deals with the same partners that everyone knows what to expect straight out the gate. 
I kind of want to pivot the conversation. So we've been going really hard into the development space. I'm interested in hearing the repositioning of multifamilies. It's a strategy that a lot of our listeners can relate to. And my, you and I have both done the strategy and still actively look for opportunities within this realm. One of the issues in Ontario real estate in specific is, is that things are still selling at four, five, six caps, whereas the cost of borrowing is seven, eight percent, right? So a lot of the numbers are really difficult to check out. That being said, I wanted to hear your thoughts or I guess uh, Graybrook's thoughts on the multifamily repositioning space. Are you guys facing the same challenges us as individual investors? And if so, is there ways to get creative around that? Or are you guys kind of holding off on that space for now? We're mainly holding off. And, and honestly, if you're getting four, like if you're getting north of five in Ontario, you're winning already. Like it's so hard to even find something north of five from an individual perspective. We've never really looked at Ontario as an attractive multifamily space. We're very active in multifamily, but not in Ontario, mainly in the United States. So in the US, we have a brand that's called Society Living. And Society Living is a raw land development brand that erects housing for the purpose of Lita. And that brand, for example, our main focus is what we call the secondary U.S. Sunbelt markets. So Houston, Atlanta, Florida, Fort Lauderdale, we're in Nashville, actively looking for stuff in the Carolinas. But we're basically bringing, you know, to us as Torontonians, this is very common, you know, hey, a 500 square foot unit, 600 square foot unit or a mansion, 700 square feet is very common for us, but it's not so common in these markets where generally speaking, land is abundant. Nobody is really Man. looking at, uh, you know, these sort of, you know, I hate to use the word micro because by Toronto standards, these are not micro, but we're essentially erecting these towers and bringing these sort of smaller units to market. And we're charging the same aggregate rent. So let's say a one bedroom is $1,400 in the market. We'll still charge $1,400, but we'll give you a smaller unit. But in exchange, we will give you phenomenal amenities. So we're focusing on a really, really top of the line amenity offering. And that's how we're sort of entering these markets with society living. So we're constructing brand new buildings for the purpose of rental. We're fully occupying them. Houston is the first one that sort of is now fully operational and occupied. And we're getting the lease up based on the fact that we're taking a little bit of your sort of living space, but giving you back in the amenity side. And these markets are now like really reacting positively to this idea that to them is novel, but for us as Torontonians is like, you know, just another Tuesday. So that's our approach when it comes to multifamily. And we generally find that these markets desperately need it. And the land acquisition cost is really healthy there. The bureaucracy in these markets is generally very quick and easy, unlike here. So there's a lot of reasons we haven't really dove into the Ontario multifamily space. For a lot of the things you mentioned, just multiply it by a hundred when you're doing, you know, two, 300 door build. Yeah, so you guys are doing predominantly ground up development, but for the intention of keeping it as multifamily, like, do you do the Grant Cardone sell? Like, hey, I'm going to buy an existing asset and reposition it or no? Uh, we did. So it's funny. So we had one asset specifically in Miami that we originally bought for the purpose of repositioning at or erecting as a rental. And then when it was very close to being leased up, the market, and this is like, we acquired this land pre-COVID, said, okay, we're going to do all of this work, rental power built up. We're about to go to market with rental. It's post-COVID. The Miami resale pre-construction market is exploding. We literally pivot right before going to market with lease and convert the entire building into a condo building. 
you know, for sale right now, it's called the LSER and sell it as a condo building. And we did that because by changing the way we positioned the building as like, do we sell this whole building to one buyer at X price after it's fully leased up? So we go sell it to a pension fund for let's call it a hundred million dollars. Or do we sell it door by door to individual owners and now we can sell for 150 million? And when we did the analysis on it, the returns to our investor base would have just been so much more juicy by going the condo route that we went that route. But that was just like a pivot we did because market dynamics just shifted so much. But generally speaking, we won't repurpose buildings. We'll usually value add. So if it's a rental, we'll take it as a rental. We'll rehab the lobby. We'll maybe build new amenities. We'll re- refurbish every space and then re-rent it and sell it still as a rental, but we won't generally repurpose. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, it's still Canadian real estate, but for example, if we take like the Keystone Muse on your website, that's like an existing, it looks like an existing block of maybe townhouses or condo towns or something like that, right? Are you buying like properties like that with the intention of like then demolishing the existing multifamily, but like constructing more like higher up like condos? Is that kind of the game plan? Are you talking about the Quebec deal? Uh, it's North York. It looks like it's about like, um, it's 2.9 acres in Falk. I just read your website. So you're basically buying like these groups of towns and then you're essentially going to demolish and put new builds on it, but Correct. it's a higher density. Yeah. Gotcha. So we'll do that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one question that I have is, is that when you're dealing with a company as big as yours, there's a lot of information data that you have that other people may not necessarily have. And I was wondering sort of on a high level, what is the opinion of Ontario real estate, Canadian real estate, we really care more about Ontario in sort of the short-term, medium-term, long-term from, I guess, a pricing perspective, maybe you can talk about rents a little as well, but what's sort of your thought on that? This is, I think, a point that a lot of people touch on quite frequently. And I, I think it gets brushed aside because everyone says it so much, people are kind of nauseous by it, but it's the concept of immigration. So I think when you look at immigration, and this is something our CEO frequently talks about, uh, it's the where I'm an immigrant and I'm on a plane headed for Canada and I have to kind of tell the pilot mid-flight like where I want him to land the plane. And I take out a map of Canada and I look at all the, the centers, the urban centers that are an option to me. And really after Toronto and potentially Vancouver, Hoover, Montreal, Calgary, it's just a nosedive of options, right? Whereas if you look at the United States, you've got 25, 30 genuine bona fide metropolises where I can kind of spread that immigration out, right? You want an urban center, you want job employment, you want healthcare, you want, you know, amenities, all that stuff. You have a lot to choose from. So if I look at Ontario, I even drill it down further to like Toronto and the Golden Horseshoe. Like that is a massive, massive concentration of where immigrants are landing. If you look at the data, you'll see it's pretty much one in every two immigrants is landing in GTA Gold Horseshoe, which is a huge number of individuals. So from that perspective, like the government throws out numbers of the amount of homes we have to build and you know what we have to do. And when they throw out a number of what we need to do, it's very exciting. And I think for the general voting public, it's like, yes, great. I agree and amazing. And I think developers agree and we agree and everybody agrees and nobody's going to disagree on what we need to do. Now let's look at historics and what have we done? And if you look at historically, what have we done? We have never even come close to pumping out the amount of doors we need to on an annual basis that they are saying what we need to do. 
So if you compare and contrast what they're saying we need to do with what we have historically done, the disparity is massive. We're talking thousands and thousands of doors. So we essentially have to 10x the greatest year of output we've ever had to match what the government is saying we need to do. So it's kind of the long, short answer of your question is the supply demand dynamics are not going to go away anytime soon, right? So the demand continues to be very high and the supply, unfortunately, continues to be low. The main, main issue we're having is affordability. So affordability is the main issue that's keeping people out of the market and not entering the market. And then it's also keeping people from moving within the market. That's separate from just, you know, interest rates and everything else that's messing people up anyways. But general affordability is a massive issue. All we talked about this earlier on in the podcast is the cost stack is pretty static when it comes to land costs, labor costs, material costs. There's one dynamic in the cost stack that has the potential to compress itself. And it is the single party of any transaction in real estate that's always making the most money without fail. There's one party that makes the Dumb. most out of anybody. And, that's and you guys point. guess what that is? Yeah, of yeah. The government. <laughs> it's the government. It's the government is making more than developer. Always, always the government without fail. The government is making more than developers. So when everyone says, you know, big, bad developer squeezing us and charging an arm and a leg for this housing, guess what? We're second in line to the government when it comes to profit. So. And listen, I understand that, you know, all of these taxations and all the stuff is needed to maintain infrastructure and do all the stuff. It's not like it's getting, you know, into somebody's pockets, but I think it could be done more efficiently. I think anybody that sort of leans a little bit right could say like, yes, taxation is needed. We need to supply dollars into the public system, but we can also do without squandering gazillions of dollars on frivolous endeavors and, and actually put it to use a little bit more properly, which is why I think there is room to compress that government stack a little bit because it's gone up 2x in the last dozen years, probably. Government is now at 2x what they used to charge uh, in the last dozen years. So have we received a 2x return on the quality of life or the amenities and sort of things were being offered from the government? You know, that's an argument for another day. Mm-hmm. So I think supply demand is still going to be strong, unfortunately, because we need an equilibrium until we achieve an equilibrium. A lot of common people, young people are going to have a lot of issue. Rent rates, I think, are the one thing that have like a very direct correlation to interest. So I think if we could see a little bit of relief on the interest side and relief on the sort of landlord carry side, it will get passed down to the tenant. But because landlords are just already upside down, most landlords in Toronto are upside down at the end of the day. They're, they're betting on asset appreciation. They're not betting on cash flow. But a lot of tenants are being subsidized by their landlord on the cost of carry versus rent. So when interest rate goes quadruple on what they were expecting to pay, the subsidization is just becoming larger and larger, and they're expecting the tenant to fill some of that gap. So if interest rates come down, I do think that rent rules will will eventually start to see a little bit of compression. But I don't see any of these things changing anytime soon. I think in the short to medium term, resale prices and pre-construction prices will continue to stay the same or go up and rent prices will go up for sure. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast, Ron Butler's podcast today, and he's pretty well connected in the industry. And he was speaking with some housing experts. You can really just see it just going on Google and looking at like BMO's recent report, TD, RBCs. Everyone is in agreement that there's a supply and demand issue in the long term. And 
in Ron Butler's podcast, one thing that he mentioned is speaking with these experts, he didn't get into names of who they are, but they mentioned that it's possible that the affordability crisis is so out of reach to fix right now because like there's so many, when, when we're talking about building, developers are not going to build if there's no profit to be made. And housing affordability implies that prices are going to drop. And when you're like exactly what you're saying, like, let's say the government kills back from 30% to like 15%, even that 15% drop in prices, we'd had a 20% drop in prices last year and do a dent in affordability, right? Like our prices are just so far to reach. So it's a very odd dynamic that we're in. I don't mean to sound doom or gloom, but it seems like a lot of talking heads and experts in the space are in agreement that we've put our backs against the wall and continue to make the issue worse and worse than actually solving for it. Because again, interest rates and all of that impacts things in the short term, but really the long-term driver of housing prices is going to be your supply demand, federal government letting in a million immigrants, provincial cannot keep up with development. It's just a total sort of shit show there. Anyways, enough of my tangent. I was going to say, I think earlier on when we were talking, you pointed out affordability, right? I think a lot of times we like compare Toronto to all these like large, like multinational cities like, oh, compared to New York and compared to LA and this and that. And like, it's sure, yeah. not right. But I think, yeah, you, you nailed on the head that it's ultimately comes down to affordability. Like our wages are not the same as what people are earning in Hong Kong or in New York City or whatever, like all these different areas that have super luxury uh, real estate, right? So that, that was a great point. I just want to quickly dabble on something that I've, I've been hearing more and more and more about. It's probably been used for like six months or so saying that there's this huge commercial loan uh, what do you call it? Like a default risk um, on commercial real estate that's not going to be valued the same because now cap rates are going up and mom and pop investors are going to go bankrupt and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff, right? But have you guys seen a lot of commercial loan like defaults across other developers or are you seeing opportunity coming from that side or, or where are you seeing the most opportunity today? Is it just like mom and pop investors that have owned land for a long time that are just looking to liquidate or yeah, where do you guys get your yeah, we don't dabble too much in commercial really at all. So A, from an exposure risk, it's not a concern to us. And I personally don't have my finger on the pulse that much with commercial. I'm kind of in the same boat as you, just reading headlines and seeing some pretty, I would say, household names mentioned in defaults. And I'm like, whoa, you know, I didn't even know these firms are capable. I thought they're the ones that collect default. I mean, it's not surprising that it's happening. I think the scale at which it's happening is a little bit scary and the types of Firms or institutions that have this exposure risk that they can't like meet obligations is very troubling just because like if these guys can't make a payment or figure it out, like your point, the mom and pop guy is he's he's told. So from that perspective, it's concerning to the second part of your question on like where are opportunities coming from right now for us, like whenever we're scouting land or stuff is bubbling up to us to do due diligence on, we have a fortunate flow of deal flow. And a lot of our builder partners are bringing deals to us, right? So they have their own network. They'll want to engage a deal. They'll, they'll want to say, hey, Greybrook may want to do this with us. They'll bring it to us. Where we're noticing a little bit difference now, and this really relates to, I think, the single individual end user home purchaser, okay? So during times of a seller's market, it's like, in whatever case, I'm taking the highest offer. You got to be like firm and like all of this stuff, right? Like, so it's like, you got to come to the table with like uh, one of your organs, like your entire bank account liquidated and like maybe I'll look at you. And now that it's like a buyer's market, you can get a little bit more creative on your offer types and how you do due diligence and how you lock stuff up. So that does translate up to the sort of large scale transactions, right? You can, you can get a little bit more creative on tying stuff up and 
doing a little bit more diligence or, or getting creative with like BTBs, for example, we're finding a lot of landowners are open to BTB scenarios. But on the flip side of that coin, and we just had this, you know, we're, we're, we're very close to locking up a piece of land in the US and it was a very competitive bid process. And ultimately, because of all the stuff you're hearing in the news and, and people are defaulting, et cetera, our pedigree, our weight and ability to actually close on a transaction, especially in the States, because they have a different closing dynamic than we do here, right? Like you can walk away from a deal like 25th hour and just go super deposit. It's very different than it is here. So now they're, you know, sellers are becoming a little bit more sensitive to who is the actual bidder? What's this firm about? Do they have cash? Are they going to close? Am I going to get my money? So as much of the sort of offer, that's important, right? So what's your purchase price when you close all the traditional stuff? It's like, let me see the resume of who's buying from me. And I can tell you that resumes are mattering these days, whereas traditionally it was just like, what's the number on the paper? I don't care who these people are. The number that matters, it's a little bit different now. <laughs> Before we start to wrap up, I want to get into the raising capital side of things because we talked offline before about how Greybrook raises capital and we we're quite surprised to find out it's not majority institutional money and not majority sort of like family offices. But why don't you get into how you guys finance and what, were you, what your capital stack is when you do these sort of projects and how do people get involved in it? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, that's by design, uh, the, the nature in which we raise capital. We're really trying to make these deals and these opportunities accessible to the retail investor. So we mainly deal with accredited investors, which are generally individuals that have capital that they're looking to expose to real estate as an asset class. Our minimum check size, just so your listeners know, because that's kind of the number one question I get, right? Is like, okay, I I want to do this, but I'm not ultra high net worth. So like, I'll just click end on the podcast here. Um, it's 25,000. Our minimum check size is 25,000. So it's not a sort of small amount of money, but at the same time, it's not an egregious amount that's a prohibitive to, I would say, a lot of people trying to participate in this. So when we go out to raise capital, we will underwrite a deal again, start to finish, right? We'll know, okay, this entire deal starts to finish. It's going to need $680 million of cash to go from we're going to buy the land all the way through to installing the doorbell on the last house. And we'll identify from the very beginning, similar to kind of how your guys would on a smaller scale, like how much do I need to bring to the bank before they'll give me cash? We'll identify the equity side. The main difference with the developer and the kind of common individual person is that the individual person can't pre-sell their house or generally they're not going to pre-sell their house, right? They have to fully finish it and bring it to market. So we have the ability to pre-sell, right? So we'll identify the amount of total equity we need up until the stage that the banks get involved. So that equity that we need is usually funded by Majority Greybrook. Some of it is our developer builder partner. And when I say Majority Greybrook, it's Greybrook and our investor base. So we'll go out to our investor base, say, hey, we're building this high-rise tower at Queensway and Islington. It requires $40 million of equity to get the ball rolling on this. And our investor base will review it. And some investors will say, hey, I'm out. And some investors will say, hey, I'm in. And basically, that's how we will scrape together the $40 million. Some deals fill very, very quickly, like incredibly quickly. You'd, you'd be amazed by how quickly we can get capital together. And some deals take uh, you know, a, a few weeks longer than, than others. Right. And that's just because it could be a new area we're delving into or, uh, or the dynamics of the marketplace or whatever it is. 
Yeah, you were just telling me you had the Hamilton deal we were talking about a little bit earlier, the master plan community. That oversubscribed in what, less than a week? (laughs) Yeah, it was just around two weeks we oversubscribed that deal. That deal basically flew (laughs) off the shelf. And that's a 10-year deal. Whether you're in a student investor or not in a student investor, when you look at just some of the very sort of high-level figures on how that deal is underwritten, you can very quickly say, okay, this is a slam dunk and I want to participate. And generally speaking, when you look at real estate as an investor, you should always have a long-term horizon, a long-term outlook. I think the opportunity to flip quick and sort of assign pre-con or whatever it is, it's still there, but I would say the risk profile on that stuff is super, super high. Like to, to get into a spec play today or something like that, it's a high risk profile. You really have to know what you're doing to do it right. Whereas what we do, A, we know what we're doing. So we have the sort of knowledge and skill base to execute and B, you know, we're doing stuff five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years down the line. So generally speaking, if you look at real estate long term, it's a great performer. Yeah. And sorry, one quick question. So when you're saying you're raising, let's say 40 million or whatever the case is, you guys are levered, like there's leverage involved in the project as well. Yeah, Do you so, know so, so, sort of the split yeah, is so usually? The way it generally works is that we will raise the equity we need up front. That equity generally gets us to a position where we could fully launch sales center. So that gets the site's on approval, land servicing, et cetera. We're able to launch sales center based on that equity. And then we're able to do pre-sales. And most lenders have like a line in the sand where they want to see your pre-sales achieved too. So you got to come to the lender with contract in hand of X percent of units, 50%, 60, 70, whatever the lender terms are. And then the second you kind of hit that threshold of where they want to see, that can trigger construction financing. And then the lender gets involved. And, you know, generally speaking, the lender is funding the bulk of the cash needed to operate these deals. Yeah, the reason why I asked that is, is because a lot of people say that you can't, me and Mayu were talking about this offline. A lot of people say you can't invest in Toronto. The numbers don't make sense. You can't invest in the Golden Horseshoe area. The numbers don't make sense from a cash flow perspective, so on and so forth. And so a lot of people end up sort of pushing towards pre-con speculative plays. But my argument to that is, is that there are investment opportunities available. For example, Ray Brooks. If you guys are going to speculate on prices increasing five years out, you might as well, one, play within the margins by investing with a developer who, based on kind of our conversation with the underwriting, you guys are holding your prices pretty conservative, right? And if the market does skyrocket in five years, you're getting equity stake in it as well, right? So you yeah, do you exactly. that, but you you're get getting the, the benefit. Yeah, and and, and on top sure. of that, people might bring in leverage. Oh, we don't get the leverage. Well, here's the thing with pre-cons. Your downside is, is unlimited or it's not unlimited. It's the point of the, if you pay 500K to the, for the property and it goes to zero, not that it's going to ever happen. You lose all of your $500,000. Here you have the leverage taken advantage by the firm that's assuming all of the risk of it, but you have limited liability. Yes. So you're getting exactly. leverage returns. It's like REITs, right? Where you get leverage returns, but with limited liability of what you're invested. So just sort of another diversification play for, for the accredited investors out there who may be looking for another opportunity to participate in real estate investing. But Mayu, I'm going to shoot it over to you. Yeah, no, I think this is a great conversation. We'll definitely have to bring you back maybe like in another quarter or so to kind of continue talking about the markets and the opportunities. But Alex, for anyone that's kind of, let's call it like a newer investor looking to get into the kind of stuff that you guys are doing, maybe doing the smaller projects, the 5, 10, 15, 20 unit like development projects. What are some of the main risks or mistakes or learning lessons that you see applicable for them? 
I think when you get into development, especially in the GTA, and listen, Greybrook, I think was probably guilty of this like a decade ago, right? That's forecasting timelines. You know, you get very optimistic and excited and you're like, you know, you draw your cash flow and you're like, great, I'm buying this land today. I'm shovels in the ground in eight months. I'm sale, I'm selling in 14. And you know, you're, you're still like at the municipal office 18 months from now, like begging for some sort of stamp on a piece of paper. So just okay. be very, very cautious of timelines and forecasts. I, I think that's one thing that newer developers are, are always overly optimistic about and don't want to like uh, admit reality, which is in this wonderful uh, sort of political climate of ours, timelines are generally longer than you would originally anticipate. Number two, and I think this is something you potentially could even touch on is like forecast your financing really, really well. At the very least, have something firm lined up or know where you're going to secure your financing. And I think a lot of rookie developers on a smaller scale make the mistake that financing is equivalent to traditional residential financing when you're getting into the developer space and not at all. So work with a professional, make sure that you're sort of getting the consultation from somebody that knows how to secure those dollars that you're going to need and what sort of key milestones have to be hit to release capital. And then last but not least, and this is something I've experienced personally as just like an individual that's renovated my own house and I've done a few spec plays in, in a previous life is the trades are, there's a very, very broad spectrum when it comes to professionalism and trades. Uh, so if you're going to sort of go out there and erect housing, start to finish, you're going to need a dozen plus trades that you're going to have to wrangle together. End up working with a GC and they, you know, that's just going to eat a ton of your margin. And like you could do that. You can go that route just to learn it and sacrifice the margin for the education. That's one route and that's totally fine. But if you're going to wrangle together a dozen plus trades yourself, do a lot of diligence. Don't be afraid to interview half a dozen plumbers before you select one. Make sure you go through a fine tooth call on the quotes, the contract, the scope of work they're promising. Ensure you're not releasing funds prematurely. Because my personal experience is that the type of service and delivery you're going to get from trades is incredible. And quotes too. You'll get a quote for two grand and 12 grand for the exact same work, which is wild. I mean, it's, it's crazy how that can happen. But just be highly, highly selective of trade because ultimately you're just a brand behind high the scenes, the product that gets delivered to the ultimate consumer is very much dependent on quality trade. Perfect. And so I guess the second question is, um, where do you see the Greybrook and yourself? Like, where do you guys intend to grow into and, and what's the future outlook look like? I mean, for us, it's just continuing to scale the amount of capital we take on and projects we take on and, and the ge- geographies we operate. You know, we only started to dabble in resale in the States about two years ago, like the Elser uh, being one of our first projects. Traditionally, we only looked at um, the US as a build to rent play. So now we're starting to evaluate value add opportunities in the state, very sort of top of mind for us. We have a few projects we're underwriting right now that would be low rise housing for resale in the US, something we haven't traditionally done before. So the U.S. is an overall theme, I think, is very exciting for us. And then obviously, you know, more than 50% of our stuff, generally speaking, is GTA or Golden Horseshoe. So just continuing to identify projects that have good margin here. And I think there's a few things that have happened recently, which I think will open up new opportunities. The solution of Peel Region being one of them. I think that's a big move and it'll be very interesting to see how the individual municipalities play out on how they handle their sort of respective tax revenue overages or shortfalls and how they make up for those gaps. 
Yeah, a lot of interesting things going on. Alex, this concludes the end of our podcast. It was a fantastic episode. We're going to need to have you on again. And people want to learn more about Braybrook. They want to connect with you or maybe someone from your team. How could they best do so? Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to learn about the firm, graybrook.com is the best way to do it. I'm alex.nissenker at graybrook.com. My profile is on the website. So you'll get the spelling of my name there. I'm sure the show notes, we can leave it there. And, uh, you know, they can't track me down that way. They can get a hold of you guys. And you obviously know my coordinates. Awesome. Really appreciate you jumping on. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, leave us a five-star review, share it with a friend, leave us a comment. It helps bring amazing guests like Alex out. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.